Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoy our opening, Alarian Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can go ahead and download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Um, Maya Dore is actually the, the featured singer in there, and she just does a wonderful job. And for those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, I just want to give you a little background on us. Uh, I feel we are about sound information, not sound bites. That's why we have hour-long conversations. Our goal is to raise all voices, big and small, from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them along with advocates and researchers and so much more. And today is a live show, so you can go ahead and call in at 323-870-4622. And for those that aren't familiar with myself, I'm Lori Bay, and my mom lived with dementia for 30 years, and that's why I switched careers and started Alzheimer's Speaks. I think there is power in togetherness and raising all our voices. So, Thank you to all of our listeners and your loyalty. Your likes, your clicks, and shares have gotten us known all around the world. And again, we truly believe in building a sense of community and collaboration and comfort so that we can win this battle against dementia. Now, before we get into our show today, which we're going to be talking with the authors of a book called Statistical Methods for Analysis of Alzheimer's and other other, diseases, uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, I'm going to just do a couple of shout outs to a few companies. Um, one is Coral Health. Um, they have been so gracious during COVID and they are um, allowing people to download their apps, both Music First and Coral Faith free um, during this time, which can just be lifesavers to have some redirection and some listening music. Uh, to, to get you through the day, along with, uh, of course, the person living with dementia. So just go to Coral, and that's C-O-R-O, CoralHealth.com, and you'll see where you can go ahead and down, download those apps. I also want to mention the GAIN Alzheimer's Trial, and you can access that by going to GainTrial.com forward slash E-N, that's GAIN. G-A-I-N trial, T-R-I-A-L dot com forward slash E-N. Participants need to be between 55 and 80 years old. They have to have a diagnosis of mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, and they have to have a care partner or a family member willing to attend study visits and report on daily activities and then also oversee medications. 
And then next, I want to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. Um, there's over 900 of them now listed, but out of that 900, right now, there's only about 40 that we know of that are offering virtual Memory Cafes. So that means you can attend any of these no matter where you live in the world. Just go to Memory Cafe directory. Dot com, and you can learn more about those uh, support groups for people with dementia as well as their care partners. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The foot bar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The foot bar walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's the thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the footbar walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the footbar walker. So today we are going to be uh, talking with two of the three authors who wrote an easy to understand but sophisticated book called Fundamental Statistical Methods for Analysis of Alzheimer's and Other Neurodegenerative Diseases, which uh, will really be a cornerstone reference book for anyone looking for simplicity in understanding basic and advanced statistical data. The book has positioned itself to allow more people to understand data analysis, which is really critical these days. And hopefully it'll play an important part in unlocking some of the secrets of these diseases, uh, which they seem to be piling up there. So um, I mentioned we're gonna have two of the three authors. Uh, Dr. Catherine E. Amorite is not gonna be able to be with us. Um, she actually pulled a lot of this information together and um, again, when she was a student and um, really did a lot of the, the grunt work on this book for her thesis and then ended up turning it into a book. And, uh, but we do have uh, two others uh, who authored the book, uh, Dr. Brittany N. Dunker, who is an assistant professor of um, pathology and laboratory medicine at the University of California. And she um, is also uh, a neuro, neuropath, neuropathology core co-leader at the Alzheimer's Disease Center. And uh, welcome, Dr. Dunker. I am sorry, I'm tripping over my tongue today. I'm not quite sure what's going on with me. <laughs> How are you doing today? Dr. Dunker, are you there? Well, apparently we lost her, so hopefully she will call back in. Um, let me go ahead and introduce you to Dr. Jeffrey R. Wilson, who is a um, professor of statistics and biostatistics at the 
uh, Arizona State University. He's a lead researcher and um, correlated observations and um, modeling as it pertains to Alzheimer's data. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Good. I'm going to see if if Dr. Dunger is still there. I don't know if she dropped off or what happened. Dr. Dunger, are you there? Can you still hear me okay? Yep, we can now. We can now, um, but we we didn't hear you earlier for whatever reason. So, uh, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, technology is wonderful. You just never know. Um, so, welcome, welcome to the show, Dr. Dunger. How are you doing today? Oh, doing quite well. And thank. I want to say thank you for all the hard work that you've done with your show. And it's almost going to just in a couple of years. It's almost going to be ten years, right? Because you launched in two thousand eleven. So, congratulations for reaching so many people. Um, to do deep dives into these information. Yeah, it's kind of funny. We call it Alzheimer's Speaks Radio because back then no one was really calling anything a podcast. <laughs> and so how so much has changed and, and grown over the years. Um, so thank you for that. Remind me of that. Um, Dr. Dunker, I'm going to ask you this first, and then I'll go to uh, Dr. Wilson. But I always like to ask all my guests if they've ever been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Yeah, as with many people probably listening, um, I have been touched um, many, many times, uh, too many to to count, uh, both with family and with friends and even with colleagues. Um, The most memorable is uh, my grandmothers. Both my grandmothers had um, dementia, and that's probably why I went into the field. I say why because so so much of our life is serendipitous circumstances. So both of my grandmothers were diagnosed with dementia, but both had very different symptoms, and it frustrated me that they were diagnosed with the same disease, but they had completely different presentations. So here I stand so many years later um, trying to fight the the scrounge of this disease. Well, and I I find so many people that are in this industry, there is a personal touch there, Uh, not necessarily for everybody, but a lot of people um, are, are driven. I know for myself, you know, if my mom hadn't been uh, living with dementia for 30 years, I, there's, I, I wouldn't have even known about it, you know, but it was life-changing for me as well and, and frustrating. And so I wanted to get in and try to, try to change it somehow. How about you, Dr. Wilson? Have you been personally touched by dementia? I went to school in Iowa, Iowa State University. And when I was there, I got a mentor by the name of George Jackson. And he grew to be very influential in my life. And about 10 years ago, I heard his wife call me and told me he's retired, but now he's in an Alzheimer's home. And so I went down to Florida to see him. And she said, you cannot handle it. She said, you will not be able to handle it. I said, yes, Clemmy, I can handle anything. I can handle anything. I got down there and we got ready and I went to to the home where he was. And that day I cried like a baby because he didn't know me and he was behaving uh, so much like a, like a kid. And so I, I, I keep going every three, four months. I will go down there and see him. But I realized soon after, sooner after that first visit, I realized I wasn't going to see him. I was going to support his family. And he left a mark uh, on my life uh, in my, as I got my PhD at Iowa State, very cold, very lonely place, but he made it a whole difference. 
And so after, I felt like I owned something. And when he passed away, he was the first funeral I went to since my mother died. I, my mother died when I was 14 or 15. And the next funeral I went to was Dr. Jackson's funeral uh, many, many years later. And so, yes, it has been a very influential uh, to my life. And by, by the stroke of imagination, I ended up uh, analyzing Alzheimer's data. Wow. Um, it, it is amazing. But, you know, the more conversation we have about this, the more often we find these connections that people have. And so I think it's important to ask people and, uh, and not be shy about it because uh, the more people that hear other people are dealing with this, the faster we're going to be able to open things up and, and really get honest answers and, and kind of get to the crux of the matter of what are the needs and, you know, how do we find a cure and, and, um, and all these different types of, of dementia and uh, neurodegenerative diseases that are, that are cropping up. Um, Dr. Dunker, I want to ask you, um, why did you feel the need, you know, to write, write this book on, you know, statistics and analyzing Alzheimer's data? No, that's such a great question because even when you were trying to state the title, it's a very long title and it has a lot of topics in it. <laughs> um, I know, it's like fundamental. Well, it does have the word fun in it, right? So it should be fun. Yeah. Um, well, well, this actually kind of dates back to when Dr. Wilson and I met. Um, I was trying to do a project um, on dementia and trying to understand there's these things called cardiovascular risk factors that um, a lot of people might hear, and that kind of in includes a large swath of things, including obesity, um, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, like there's all these different things, and they're intertwined with each other. So I wanted to study these in dementias, but I didn't really know how. So what we do as scientists is we get collaborators that can help us answer these problems or answer these questions. And so I was put in contact with Dr. Wilson, and this was now what Dr. Wilson was well, about 10 years ago now. So we've known each other for that many years. Um, and so we started to, to talk about this and starting to go through this relationship. And over the course, we realized there was really no primer, no Rosetta Stone that was out there in book form to have statistics that was centered on Alzheimer's disease. So there were books out there on statistics, right? And they were very heavy, very jargon-based, having squiggly lines and formulas. I'm talking from a neuropathology standpoint. This is stuff that Dr. Wilson loves. But I, we wanted to really have something that was understandable to, to act as this gateway um, to make statistics a little bit more friendly. Dr. Wilson, did you have anything to add to that? Because so many years ago, well, right? <laughs> well, what happened... Prior to meeting Brittany, I met uh, Marwan Saba and uh, Eric Ryman here in Phoenix. And they launched in about the late, early 2002, they launched with their University of uh, Arizona and Arizona State University and Mayo Clinic. They launched this Alzheimer's Center and a few other people. And I was involved in that uh, as the biostatistician to help analyze data along that line. And then by the stroke of imagination, I ran into Brittany. 
Okay. Well, it is interesting how our paths cross and, and how things just uh, just crop up. What, uh, Dr. Dunger, I, I'm going to put this to you first and then go to Dr. Wilson again. What do you think is special about the methods to analyze this this horrible, well, it's horrible diseases um, that we have? Yeah, um, as many of the listeners uh, probably know this is a disease of, of aging. So people have an accumulation of a lifetime of events, choices, exposures. So you think of all those data points and, and how do we make sense of them. Um, with that comes specialized methods. So I mentioned about those cardiovascular risk factors. So if somebody has obesity, they might also have diabetes. So how do you tease out which one might be affecting these signs and symptoms more. And so we have certain methods to tease out, and, and that's something that's called collinearity. When one thing goes up, another thing might go up. And so we have these specialized methods to do that for these terrible diseases. Another thing, as many of the people listening might know, is that people can have multiple types of dementia. So it's not just they might have Alzheimer's disease. They could also have some vascular dementia as well. So how do you understand when people fit into what we call groups, so multiple groups, and try to tease out? Because you could treat the Alzheimer's disease, but then what about treating that vascular component? Yeah, very, very true. Uh, Dr. Wilson, anything you want to add there on that? Uh, yes, the whole problem, statistics, is really one of those names that one of those disciplines had to define. Somebody will have one statistic course and they will call themselves a statistician, but they will not have one medical course and call themselves a doctor. And what has happened in, in the world of statistics, we have these basic things that we learn, which is based on independent observations. Most of the time you go to school and you have a statistics course. That course is really uh, uh, assuming everything that happened happened independently. So I'm measuring, I'm measuring how many, how long it takes to this happening, and I, but yet I'm measuring how long it takes to something else. The two things are related, but we will analyze them one at a time. And so because of that fact, because the analysis is usually misrepresentative, we thought that a book like this that will put the facts involved in analyzing Alzheimer's data, because as Brittany would say, when you look at a patient, the patient gives you several outcomes. So how could you take a separate outcome and analyze it? And so this book helps the, the uh, new member, immediate member, and the, in, the one involved, it has different stages in this book that helps somebody to understand and realize that not because you have one course in statistics, it makes you a statistician, but because Alzheimer's has certain assumptions that is not usually seen in other kinds of data. Great, thank you. Um, Dr. Dunkar, if you can explain to our, our um, audience, and you had kind of mentioned this, you know, in, in your own personal experience, the different symptoms 
um, that, that your family members had, but yet it was called the same thing. Can you tell us now how is Alzheimer's different from other neurodegenerative diseases? I mean, we're, we're hearing more about Lewy body and vascular and FTD and um, CTE and, and mild cognitive impairment. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. And can you can you share with people, you know, why all these terms, why all this confusion, and and why it's important to to be able to specify the differences? No, this is such a great point because even I, like I said, going back to to my grandmother's is I was so frustrated because their symptoms were very different from each other. So um, my mom's mom, uh, her symptoms were more, she would have hallucinations, so um, thinking that the people were coming out of the TV and having breakfast with her every morning, and she would converse about such the great time that they had having breakfast with her. Um, So there was those symptoms. And And then she also had her personality changed a lot. Um, especially in the later stages. And then with my dad's mom, um, she had more of, as a lot of clinicians would say, the classical memory problems where she wouldn't know who I was. She would always tell me to say hi to her granddaughter who went to school with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was that memory thing, but she would always remember. So she would go to church every Sunday in a church that she hadn't attended before her dementia and she would sit in the same exact spot in that church. So to me, that was fascinating that, you know, and I was frustrated. Like, she couldn't remember who I was, but how can she remember to sit in the same exact spot all the time? So you had these two different presentations. And the reason why they were both the term dementia, so you can think of dementia as a broad term. So dementia in the clinical sense is that a person will have um, cognitive impairment as well as a decrease in activities of daily living. That is the definition of dementia. So dementia is an overall broad term. And I like to always make the analogy because I'm from Detroit. You might have a car, right? But what type of car do you have? What is your brand? Do you have a Ford, a Chrysler, or a GM? So you have this overall category of dementia, which is your overall kind of car category. And then you have these types, which are the underlying processes of, is it Alzheimer's disease? Is it dementia with Lewy bodies? Is it vascular dementia? And with that, to to kind of talk about this, like with the dementia, it's that outward sign and symptom. Just like if you were to have a stomach ache and a high fever, how do you know if it's the cold or the flu, right? The cold or the flu are the underlying causes and you have these outward symptoms. So with Alzheimer's has a certain underlying associations, which are those amyloid beta plaques and tau tangles. And with dementia with Lewy bodies, that's those Lewy bodies that are composed of alpha-synuclein. And then with vascular dementia, that's with having those infarctions, which are the pathological term for strokes. So hopefully that outlines a little bit. That was a lot of information in in one small segment, but it's really important to understand because even when I started learning this, I I learned, like, I was using dementia and Alzheimer's interchangeably. I'm like, how can they have both? How can I have both? So hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah, I've always heard kind of dementia is that overall umbrella, and, you know, people use it kind of as the spokes um, for the different types that fall under. It's just kind of like with the common cold. 
everybody has a different set of symptoms or even when it comes to the flu now we're finding out there's many different types of of flus out there as well and um and you had also mentioned you know some people you know hit the jackpot and they get more than one type and people are just shocked when they hear that you know well, yeah you and mean? that's more more often than we think like we've done mm-hmm. studies and this can um to to kind of give a throwback to i think it was three weeks ago when you talked about um the disparities and um gender as well as different ethno-racial groups, we find yep. that this can, there's more we call mixed pathologies, um, especially in Hispanics. So there's gonna, mm-hmm. there's a lot more Alzheimer's disease, but there's also on top of that cerebrovascular disease. So they have both of those entities um, in their brain when they pass away. Um, so if you're treating Alzheimer's disease, like there's a lot of these great drug trials going on, but they might just specifically be focused on those amyloid beta plaques or those tau tangles. Okay, you could give that drug, but then what happens um, with all the cerebrovascular disease? And that's bringing it back to the book is we try to account for those multiple um, groupings, right, to how, to how to make sense of all this um, difference in these diseases. Yeah, I know, you know, when my mom died, we did a, um, a brain autopsy, and I sat down with the, the doctor, and I said, okay, make sense of this gibberish to me, because it was, a lot of it was just over my head, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a daughter of, of a mother who had the disease, and so I know enough to be dangerous, and so I thought I'm going to sit down and um, just ask Dr. Fry to explain this to me, and um, it was so funny, because his his first reaction when he read it was oh my gosh I've never seen a brain this atrophied and then he came back and he said oh I apologize I shouldn't have reacted like that and he said but actually we should expect that for someone who's lived with this disease this long and what it showed was my mom definitely had Alzheimer's disease but she also had signs Parkinson's in Lewy body so then we went on to kind of talk about that and I said, well, you know, she really, as far as Lewy body, we didn't really see any of the typical stuff. I mean, she had a little um, paranoia in there, but that, you know, I think that's kind of a phase with almost all, all types of dementia that they go through. And it didn't last very long. And I said, you know, she did have conversations that weren't in my reality. Um, it was like she was talking with people who had already crossed over and passed away and I said, but, you know, I, I kind of believe that that can happen. And so to me, that wasn't, uh, you know, give her a drug and fix this and make this go away because I'm uncomfortable with it. She was calm. She was settled. And so I didn't view it as a problem. And then um, she did have some Parkinson's signs, some, some minor tremors. But then as the disease progressed, we didn't see that much of it because, you know, her body shut down more. And she wasn't mobile and she needed to be, um, you know, transferred. And, and so you don't see, we didn't see a lot of those signs, but there was a little bit, but nothing, nothing major that we, that we noticed, I guess, as far as signs. Do you see that as, as somewhat typical? Yeah, and this is what's so tough with research. So even though we try to be as standardized as possible, you made these great points, is a lot of times what happens is is somebody might get diagnosed with a devastating disease, 
like somebody who's mm-hmm. diagnosed with cancer, for example, not to deter from the, the importance of dementia, but a lot of other diseases might just fall to the wayside because that's what's going to be in their medical records. We use this yep. term nihilistic apathy just because there's such a focus on this big disease and all this other stuff. And like you said, with the tremors, right, the, at, at end stage, people might be bed bound. They might not be mobile. So how do you really see that tremor? How do you really understand these um, concomitant diseases? That's why the autopsy portion, I have the great privilege of seeing brains after death. And that's the only way you can definitively diagnose a dementia is after death, which is just awful. We're getting close with we do have what's called biomarkers like people are looking for certain things in blood or they look at in vivo so when a person's alive they'll look at brain scans Um, but those sometimes you know they can they can get within a certain probability but that definitive diagnosis is at death which is just awful that's why we do what we do is trying to understand these data well and I think I don't think people realize how critical that process is and I wish there was funding um, so that we could get more of that done because a lot of families can't afford, you know, the eight, nine hundred, you know, thousand dollars it costs to get the autopsy mm-hmm. done. And I think that that would increase our odds of getting, getting more information. And, you know, like with my mom, she had, uh, I'll never forget. It was probably three years before she passed. She had some significant tremors. I mean, to the point where it almost looked mm-hmm. like convulsions and, I remember having to go back in and update her paperwork, and they said, you know, we think this is probably close to the end. And we, we updated everything. They never figured out what caused it, and she lived three more years. Never never had that. But for, like, two days, she was having just these severe tremors. And, um, again, they don't know what caused it. And we weren't really going to dive in deep at that point either to cause her discomfort. We were, you know, in that whole comfort mode. But um, I do think it's important for people to understand that things can change. And I know people are just flabbergasted when they were told they had Alzheimer's disease and and then a lot of them were told, oh, no, we're recategorizing you as um, mild cognitive impairment. And they're like, there's nothing mild about this. <laughs> you know, It is amazing. Changed. You bring up the great point how people latch on to definitions. They latch mm-hmm. on like the first thing that they'll hear. They're like, okay. And just that thing of dementia is, is a constant change. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the fact that you go to bed Tuesday and all of a sudden you wake up and you have Alzheimer's and that's how it's going to be. It's, it's yep. this constant change in how to get better, better definitions. I, I would like to do a plug because there are, um, uh, on, in the book we work with data from what's called the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center. And what mm-hmm. that does is it compiles data from over 30 sites from around the country. They're called Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. And there are mm-hmm. a, a lot of them are in major cities. We have one here at University of California, Davis. Um, there's um, one in Arizona. In Arizona, they actually have a consortium where they involve University of Arizona, uh, Banner Sun Health Research Institute, Arizona State University, which is what um, Dr. Wilson's involved in a Mayo Clinic. But there's all these across the country, and they're great resources um, for data on Alzheimer's disease. And a lot of them do have autopsy programs and are enrolling, just like how you had the plug for the GAIN trial. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these local Alzheimer's centers do have programs, um, and they are recruiting. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's 
so important to to get that information. I mean, I, I just um, and and I know some families are scared to get it, but it but it also as you know as a daughter, it's nice to know. Um, people ask them too, you know, well, are you going to go get tested? And I've decided that I'm not because just because you have a gene doesn't mean that it's going to going to take and you're going to get it. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole if I have signs and and uh, feel the need, then I'll then I'll go in and and get tested at that time. So there's lots of lots of neat things um, happening that we can take advantage of and kind of step up to the plate. And, and you know, and this is something too. If people are trying to spend down, because a lot of times people are, if they feel um, their loved one is going to run out of money, you know, you can repeat some of these um, autopsies ahead of time as well to do that and it's just all set and ready to go. Yeah, that has to be planned um, ahead of time and, and make, making mm-hmm. sure to let people know with these Alzheimer's Disease Center, it's very important that we follow people during life in a standardized fashion. It's so, it's so hard for us when we'll get a call and somebody's like, oh, I want to donate my brain. This was their last wish. And we can take the brain, but it's really hard to analyze if we don't have that standardized picture of what people were in life. We can get yep. the reports from families, which are really helpful, but we have these tests and everything, um, like you heard in one of the previous podcasts about that Montreal cognitive assessment where you can identify a camel. And all those are really, really important because of the fact that we can have those standardized ways, especially getting back to the statistics, right, to try to understand these patterns in cohorts and cultures and everything. It's really important. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, Dr. Wilson, I wanted to um, ask you because, you know, the the book is really special in terms of, of analyzing data. But, you know, what are some of the challenges with statistics, you know, to really make the materials useful and how do people interpret things? Well, first, uh, as I was saying earlier, you may have, have been exposed to a class in statistics, and because you're exposed to that class, you can't help but go back to what you know. And so the book builds on what you know. The first part of the book says, okay, you think if you have one, one variable, uh, say it's age, and another variable, say it's weight, and you want to look at these two variables, you might say, let me do a regression analysis. And so we take, we take two variables at a time, and we build off of that, build off what you know. If you don't know anything, we start off, you will start off in the early chapters. But what we do, we leave out all the theory. We do not, this book is not about theory. Uh, we have given, we give you references where you can find the theory. But what we do here is say, okay, take a data set, uh, do step one, do step two, and we give you a step-by-step approach where you will ask yourself if these assumptions are satisfied. So we make the book very easy. I could say easy, but we make the book less challenging then. I, I, I don't want to give people the wrong impression that it's just, but we make it uh, as simple as we probably can so that you can take what you know or what you don't know, start from there in Chapter 1, then we build up to Chapter 2, we build up the three, and we, we each chapter we build on we build on the other. 
because the book is really about binary observation. What we mean by that is the book is really about did you get Alzheimer's or did you not get Alzheimer's? That's the key of the book. Or, or these these people have all uh, these people were one time MCI and now they become Alzheimer's. So we so we say we look at binary data. That doesn't mean all the other variables that we look at is not on a continuous measure. It means that the outcome, the focus of the book is the outcomes are binary. And so based on that, we then say you have one binary variable, and then we start building up. One binary variable with one predictor, one binary variable with two predictors, one binary variable with three predictors, and then we go to what happens if you have two binary variables with one predictor, two binary variables with two predictors, three binary variables with three predictors. And so we give you a real systematic approach there. Uh, we, we assume that people who are working on Alzheimer's, they, they are, the disease and the science is, is challenging enough, we assume that you don't want to go out and learn a whole area about a whole new thing about statistics, but you want to have enough so that you could, you could do the right things. You can, you can use the right method. And so this is what we believe that we don't want to boast, but there's no other book out there that we believe like it. And so here, uh, if I am new to Alzheimer's uh, data, I might start off with the first two, three chapters. I will look at the book. But if I knew something about statistics, I may go on to later chapters. And if I really know a lot about statistics, I may just look at the last three, four chapters. Because what we put in here is new in the way that people look at analyzing Alzheimer's in the, at different stages. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add there, Dr. Dunker? I think Jeff did such a great job just explaining it. I mean, this book is, is really special in how it builds on these concepts. Um, the biggest thing I think that really helps with the understandability of this book is we give what we call a motivating example. So we'll state something to the point of, okay, you have these Alzheimer's patients and you want to understand certain variables that might affect them. So understanding even weight so obesity, this and that, how could you study that? How do you understand if weight is different with people who had Alzheimer's and people who didn't? So starting with those motivating examples and just walking through all those different steps um, with different programs. Because another thing to mention is with these statistical aspects, a lot of times they'll have certain programs, just like how people have Macs and PCs and things are a little bit different. That's the same mm -hmm. with a lot of these statistical programs is every program will have certain nuances of how to do things. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, now, Dr. Wilson, can you, and you've kind of covered this, but um, maybe we can go a, a little, a little bit, uh, a little different angle on here on how the book differs from other, you know, statistical books, um, that analyze, um, you know, the different modalities here. Right. Well, the, the book has uh, 12 chapters. And what's mm -hmm. different about it, the different methods, you might know survival analysis. You might know, uh, say, you might know Bayesian statistics. So you might know mod, mod, uh, joint modeling. 
what we do, we take those models and we show you how they're specific to Alzheimer's. And so usually when you're in a statistics course on the university, we, will, uh, we don't concentrate our courses on, a, on a, a particular area. We give you the tools and then hope, well, because we cannot do that in the university, give you a course for diabetes, give you a course for Alzheimer's, give you a course for, we, can't, we, will, we don't have enough faculty, we don't have enough time, and usually statistics is not the key part for someone's degree. And so what we do is say, okay, whatever method you have, we then tell you how these methods are specific to Alzheimer's. And the key thing about Alzheimer's, uh, in all the discussions you just heard from Brittany, the key thing about it is that the outcome measures, the measures that you have on an individual, those measures are not independent. And when I say independent, uh, if, if you are measuring... Uh, when you go to the doctor, and the doctor, you say, doctor, I don't feel well. The doctor don't just say, ah, let me check your, your temperature. You have, a, you have a fever. He will check that. He will, uh, he will check your pulse. He will check. He may even take a blood test. He may do I would like to say things. she would check. You're saying he. The doctor could be a woman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I am sorry, Miss. <laughs> Just time. getting that in there with you, Jeff. I, I'm, learning, I'm learning to speak again. So I've been learning to speak <laughs> again. So forgive me if she go to the doctor and she took it temperature and she took. Uh, she will take these different things, but all these different measures she takes off of you, they're all coming from the same patient. And you would see the reason that uh, the doctor would be looking at these different measures is because in the doctor's mind, they are related. So then you want to analyze that, and you cannot take the temperature apart, measure the temperature. You can just take each, each variable apart and say, okay, maybe it's because of the temperature. Maybe it's because of the blood. We know that all these things together, they are correlated. Working together, they are correlated. And so because we know that they are correlated, the big point of this book is you cannot treat these things separately. Uh, you cannot do that because they may give you a different kind of conclusion because you are not looking at them uh, all in one. I read the quote soccer. And when I coached soccer, one time I was on uh, waiting for my new team to come down. And the first, the first, this was a nine-year-old. The first nine-year-old came down, and he dropped the bag. He said, "I coach. I'm a forward." I said, "Yes, son. I know you're a forward." And he sat down there quietly, like a lamb. And I had coached older boys before, and I thought, "Oh, this is going to be a breeze coaching nine-year-olds." No longer would I hear about the girlfriend. No longer I hear anything. The second nine-year-old came down and he said, Hi, coach. How are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He said, I said, yeah, yeah, I know you're forward. And he sat right next to the first guy. The third guy who they had an advantage, they knew, knew each other. This was, I was new to the, the team. And the third one came down and he threw his ball. He, said, hi, he waved at me and said, Hi, coach. 
and he ran up there. I said, guys, no, no, come back here. And the two guys, the two angels, were now like devils. And so those three guys, no, guys, come back here. If you get knocked down in the street, I will lose my, my life. I will lose my, or everything that I owe. Your parents will sue me. Come back here. Come back here. I was exhausted by the end of that practice. And so my <laughs> point about it is variable one, working with variable two, nothing happened. But when you brought in variable three, the reaction that you had based on variable and one and two is a whole different situation. And so this is the key point that that same, that same idea comes out in statistical data, that you may look at a variable by itself and you say, oh, that variable is doing fine. You look at another one, but you realize as soon as you bring a third variable in the mix, and why do you need to bring several variables in the mix? Because Alzheimer's is not based on one, one characteristic of the individual. There are several things working together. Okay, great. One thing I wanted to ask you um, regarding the book is, will this book help, be helpful for people who want to set up a new research trial in terms of how they should approach it? And I'll, th- I'll throw that to, uh, to Dr. Wilson again. Uh, no, we do not. We do not. This book doesn't set up, uh, let's say, phase one, phase two, phase three, just like you're here right now and getting a vaccine for certain things. But once you get the data in phase one, you will have some kind of data. This book will help you. In phase two, you have another type of data. This book will help you. And in phase three, you have all those tons of data. This book will help you once you have the data. But this does, not, this does not go into the design of the experiment and how you, uh, how you go from one phase to the other. Okay. I was, I was thinking maybe it would help people in terms of figuring out, and I would imagine they have to figure this out before, needless to say, I've not done a trial myself, um, you know, but figuring out how you want to analyze something, how you want to break it down. I was thinking it might open some people's eyes in terms of different ways to to look at the data itself. Any any comments from you, Dr. Dunger? Um, it does have just again, it's it's the fun. I'm going to emphasize the fun, demental processes. So it does have some chapters in there about what we call time to event, because a lot of times with clinical trials, you're trying to see, okay, are they converting to a certain something or are, is their memory getting better or getting worse? So it has those things in the book, but to emphasize a little bit what Dr. Wilson was saying, a lot of these things in statistics, they're term models. And they're term models because there's not one right way or one wrong way to analyze things. And this happened with um, one of the recent uh, clinical trials with one of the Alzheimer's drugs is initially um, they did some statistical analysis and they ended up pulling the drug, but then they analyzed it a different way with another statistical model and they found something different. And so now the drug is back in the pipeline again. So it's all how you're looking at the data and how you're modeling things. Okay. Okay. So I guess in, in my mind, that would be helpful in terms of just opening eyes in terms of, because uh, I think we can all approach things and we have it all figured out in our head, but then when we see how other people are doing it, we might expand 
you know, our outcomes or, you know, our, our approach to something. And so that's why, that's why I was thinking that it might be helpful. uh, It's a a great question. It's a great question because just understanding how we can do better. Because as you know, we're still what four drugs on this diseases, no one, there's no cure. So how can we move forward? Yep. Exactly. Um, Dr. Dunker, uh, you know, what have we missed and what do we need um, to let our audience know in this conversation? I can't believe how fast the time is going already. (laughs) Well, I think the biggest thing, and you touched upon this again in one of your previous podcasts, is most of our data, especially some of the data that we talk about in the book, is based off of certain types of people. So to be just frank, it's upper middle class white Caucasian people. And as we Mm -hmm. know, this disease doesn't have boundaries just within that sect. There's people that have so much differences based on culture, based on socioeconomic status, um, early life experiences, late life experience. So I, I just challenge everybody to have diversity. And I know there's a lot of barriers that have happened over time with how people have been treated when it comes to research. But we are very, very sensitive about these issues, especially in the Alzheimer's disease centers. So having that diversity is so important. Um, indigenous people, Asian Americans, um, Hispanics, Latinos, um, African Americans, they just there needs to be more representation in these data sets. And so just challenging the readership for that or the listenship, sorry, I've said readership, listenship uh, to your program would be great. Um, yeah, I know so many are struggling trying to kind of break into some of those groups because there's a lot of distrust out there and and um, cultural beliefs. Um, and so, again, it, if anyone has some ideas on that, um, reach out to me because this is a huge, huge need. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't, we can't fix something if we don't know what all is wrong. And um, yeah. we, need, we need to be inclusive in terms of gathering everyone into that, the research and the data and the, and the support information and um, resources that come mm-hmm. from that. For sure. Um, Dr. Wilson, anything that you want to want to add that maybe we've missed and we need to discuss before before our time is up? Well, well, Dave, we haven't talked about uh, programming. In the book, mm-hmm. and uh, first, before I go on, I would like to thank John Hopkins uh, University book, uh, book, uh, Press for publishing this book on our behalf. But in the book, you have you have things like you have several different basic statistical uh, programs. And so the book helps you. So when you are in the book, suppose you, and I don't want to uh, confuse the audience, but there's something called SAS. That's a statistical program. There's something called R. That's a statistical program. There's something called STATA. That's a statistical program. And there's something called SPSS. That's a statistical program. We took these basic statistical programs that people will most likely be using, and we took and, and walked them through the analysis of the data so that they have the use of the programs to help them. And then after we get the output, we did some interpretation of what the output is, is saying to them. So we make it really self 
uh, uh, self-contained. Uh, so they could look at it. They could look at the book. We have a data set. Um, what we use the data set from NAC, as, as Brittany said, and they can use one of those familiar programs, and that those programs, then they see, okay, what do I do with this output? And then we, we walk them through the interpretation of some of the outputs. And then in Chapter 12, we have key, a few case studies so that they could walk through all at once rather than the piecemeal as we did in the first 11 chapters. Okay, wonderful. Well, I, like I said, I appreciate uh, the time you guys have taken today and, you know, kind of breaking down, again, the book, Fundamental Statistical Methods for Analysis of Alzheimer's and Other Neurodegenerative Diseases. There, that one rolled off my tongue a little easier than the first time. <laughs> well, it's, we always do data in triplicate as scientists, right? So that's why. <laughs> Well, that's good. Um, Dr. Dunger, is there um, a contact information that you'd like people to have, an email address? or? Yeah, um, as with everybody, I am searchable on the web. Yay. Um, so you can probably just uh, search me on the web. And uh, So Brittany N. Duggar, and I'm not part of that big Duggar family. It's D-U-G-G-E-R, and my name doesn't start with a J. Um, and I'm at the University of California, Davis. Uh, so go oh. Aggies. Yay. Okay. So is it all spelled out for the university or do they use uh, just UCD? Yeah, sometimes they use UC just like when you're dry. So you know how you, even on the West Coast, you're talking about, oh, it's I-75 or this. Well, on the West Coast, we like to use like mm -hmm. the 10. So it, sometimes they use UC. So UC Davis is, is another way that they abbreviate. Or okay, UC Davis Health, wait, hashtag UC Davis Health. <laughs> okay, I just wasn't sure in your email address how it how it was at the end there. But if you can email me that, then I'll go ahead and Yeah, and I can, and that. we'll post that on the website. So if people want to contact me, feel free to email. I'm more than welcome uh, okay. to answer questions because I know these are difficult diseases. They are. Yep. That's for sure. And uh, Dr. Wilson, um, for contact information for you, do you have an email address or phone number that you'd like to give out? Yes, please. Jeffrey Wilson. Uh, Jeffrey is spelled R-E-Y, and I'm at ASU.edu. Jeffrey.Wilson at ASU, as in Arizona State University, ASU.edu. And uh, okay. my number is 14. Two one three four four six zero. Okay, sounds wonderful. And people can go to the John Hopkins University Press also to um, to order the book if that if that's something that they're interested in. Well, again, thank you both so much for being with us today. This was a very interesting conversation, and I would encourage our listeners to go ahead and push this out and send it out to people you know um, that this might be of interest to. In the meantime, we, for – oh, go ahead. So we, have a, we have two, two webinars coming up uh, in a couple of months. Okay, and where and they'll be free, free webinars, yay! Uh, okay, and how would people find out about those? Uh, we will we jump from Jack Holmes from uh, the uh, John Hopkins Press will be helping us with that, and we will look for other ways to uh, we can share it with you and other people. But as soon okay, as we settle so, the so 
So if people reach out to you, they can get on the list or reach out to John Hopkins University Press um, to That's be correct. able to find out more. Is that correct? Okay, wonderful. Well, good to know. Good yeah, to know. More, more to come. There's your teaser trailer, right? Teaser trailer, yeah. more to come. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you both so much for being part of the show today. Really, really appreciate your time. And it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And for our listeners, if you need to reach out to me, the easiest way is just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you can click on that big contact button and, um, and give me, uh, you know, reach out to me. Maybe you're going to be our next guest. Again, we talk to everybody all over the world. So if you are living with dementia yourself and diagnosed, maybe you're caring for somebody, maybe you're a professional that offers a service product or tool, uh, maybe you're a researcher that has some, some cutting-edge information that we all need to know about, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com, you'll also find out all of our um, projects and initiatives and a bunch of free resources there. So in the meantime, uh, until next time, have a blessed week, everyone. Thanks again. Bye now. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.